Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're here to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and much more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on our waters. Water, water everywhere. And we will talk about the environmental threats to our groundwater and water conservation today. In previous episodes this month, we talked about our ocean waters, we've talked about our urban waters, and the threats to them. As well, we dug really far in depth into the many and sometimes scary health impacts to us as humans from the degradation of those waters. And so today, as we continue our series on waters, we're going to dig into groundwater and the environmental issues around it and the threats to human health. As well, we're going to talk to some experts later about a particularly important issue around groundwater, and that is having enough of it which is perhaps the biggest environmental and human health issue surrounding our waters, that is water conservation. So what is groundwater really? I don't think it's that stuff that we put our foot in as we, as we get out of the car on a rainy day. It's not a puddle. So what is it really and why is it important? A large portion of the world's fresh water resides underground that is stored within the cracks and the pores in the rock that make up our Earth's crust. Groundwater supplies drinking water for more than 50% of the total U.S. population and about 99% of the rural population. It's in high demand from agriculture and growing populations, that is to grow our food. About 64% of groundwater is used for irrigation to those crops, Groundwater is an important component also in many industrial processes, as well some very, very important ecological systems, such as our wetlands or surface waters that are fed by springs and seeps, also rely on groundwater. And groundwater pollution is a serious problem throughout the entire world that is negatively impacting all of these very important uses of groundwater that we just talked about, as well as the rest of the world that depends on it. So our guest today to help us explore the importance of groundwater and why we must be concerned about it is Dr. Karen Kinsella. Karen is an environmental scientist with a Ph.D. in soil chemistry and microbiology, and she's been directed to us by the National Groundwater Association, for whom she volunteers. Karen is a biogeochemist at GZA Geo Environmental Incorporated. 
and she resides and works in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Karen has more than 40 years experience in the agricultural, analytical, construction, energy, and environmental sectors. And her consulting practice focuses on applying biochemical and geochemical processes to active remediation of soil and groundwater contaminants. Welcome, Karen. We are so glad that you could join us today. Thank you, Bernice. Now, Karen, I want to start out. We talked about the fact that over 70% of the Earth's surface is covered in water. We talked about this a lot a couple of episodes ago when we talked about oceans. But of that water, just 1% is readily available for human use. And of that 1%, I believe 99% or the majority of that water is found in the ground. So can you give us a better definition of what we're really talking about when we use the term groundwater? Groundwater is one of our most valuable resources. Even though you probably never see it or even realize it's there, once you get below the water table, most of the empty spaces between the rocks or the soil particles are filled with water. And to imagine the water table, think about when you dig a hole in the sand at the beach. And it, if you dig deep enough, it fills with water. And that the top of that water is the top of the water table or the saturated zone at that location. Now, if you're at the beach right near a lake or near the ocean, that's going to be a fairly high water table. You won't have to dig too far. But other parts of the world, you may have to dig really far, you know, like dozens of feet down. Is that what some people call or we hear referred to in some cases as sea level, above or below sea level? Yes. You would, that the top of the water table in that hole you dug by the ocean would be called sea level. Right. I remember living in South Florida, I think the whole area of Miami and everything south of it was below sea level. And we had a running joke that when you go to the south of Miami, which is farming country, that if you take a teaspoon and dig, you're going to hit water. Right. But not in Texas. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Had to drill miles and miles and miles to find some. Yeah. In Connecticut, it's more like maybe 10 feet down. Not so bad. Well, tell us how we access this groundwater and how it gets to be so indispensable in our daily lives. So, you know, we know it's, it's this water that's in these saturated soil and rock spaces underneath the groundwater table. And you, you can bring it up by pumping. Um, that's generally the most common method. And that's what your household wells will do or if you have... Um, municipal water, then they may take it out of groundwater wells or they may take it out of surface water like reservoirs or out of rivers. It really depends on the area. But if, you know, groundwater is used for, besides used for drinking, which is what we think of in our homes, it's, it's used in a lot in agriculture, of course. It's used to make most industrial products, huge amounts of water. I mean, just I'll give you an example that's, that's kind of a scary one. To make one pair of Levi's blue jeans, it takes about 20 gallons of water. Now, that doesn't seem so bad, right? But it also takes about 1,000 gallons or more of water to grow the cotton used to weave that one pair of jeans. And then don't forget all the water you used to wash your, your jeans over their lifetime. That's a lot of groundwater. 
Yeah, so industrial uses really seem as though they're using more water than even our growing industries. Yeah, I would say. You know, it's pretty equally divided. Now, we hear a lot about pollution, though, everywhere of our natural resources. But many of our listeners might not be aware of how pollution reaches our soil and groundwater. In fact, we ourselves are probably contributing to that pollution a lot without knowing it. Can you tell us about the specific sources? Yes, Groundwater, sometimes it contains naturally occurring germs and, and harmful chemicals that are, just, that are natural in the environment. For example, arsenic and radon are in rocks in some parts of the country, just naturally. However, more often it is human activities that pollute the groundwater. And these can include everything from you know, incorrect use of fertilizers and pesticides on your landscape, your septic system. You know, 20% of people in Texas use septic systems to process their household wastewater. And if they're no, those are not put in the right place, properly constructed and maintained, they, they can definitely pollute the groundwater. You could also have um, improper removal or storage of wastes, mining and construction, chemical spills at work sites, or flooding that inundates chemical manufacturing plants and exposes chemicals to surface water initially, and eventually that that goes down into the groundwater. I believe we may have experienced that quite drastically a couple years ago with Hurricane Harvey. I heard and read, right, and I have to think some of that nasty stuff oil, chemicals, what have you, that got spread around the water, it's still there now? Has it seeped down into the groundwater and yeah, although Mother Nature can does a pretty fine job of, of cleaning things up, but it does it can take a while when there's a lot. You said Mother Nature can clean up a lot. Just describe that and tell us about that a little bit. There's a lot of bacteria that that are beneficial bacteria that are that are in the soil. I mean, even just if you if you take a, a, just a teaspoon of topsoil, there can be a billion bacteria in it. I mean, a huge number, and a lot of those bacteria will evolve to, to handle any kind of chemicals you throw at them, as long as you don't throw too much too fast. Well, thank you. And I, I want to, when we come back from the break, I want to key in on a couple of those sources of pollution that you mentioned, especially the ones that are most dangerous to our health. Thank you, Karen. We'll be right back after the break with more of this. We want to give a shout out to our sponsors. That is EarthX the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, and interactive experiences. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. This year, EarthX 2020, in partnership with the National Geographic Society, will be held virtually April 22nd, through 27th to mark the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. This includes their conferences and film festival. And in light of the COVID-19 guidelines, its Expo physical event at Fair Park has been canceled for the year. So go to earthx.org to register and join in all the many virtual events. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the green and healthy living authority that we need right now. They can be found in all Whole Foods, natural grocers, and central markets, as well as online at nadallas.com. Check them out 
for healthy immune system tips to help you defend yourself against the coronavirus. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And we're back with our special guest, Dr. Karen Kinsella, talking about groundwater pollution, the environmental threats to our planet and our health. Thank you for being with us again, Karen. Right before the break, we, you were telling us about a number of the contaminants to our groundwater. And one of them that you mentioned, I want to dig a little bit deeper into it, and that's in regards to septic contamination. It appears that groundwater contamination from septic systems can pose some significant health risk. Can you tell us about the dangers of drinking water contaminated from septic runoff and the health threat? potentials of that? Yes. I mean, bacteria, germs that, that cause, you know, anything from all kinds of infections, you know, including dysentery, hepatitis. I mean, those, you know, things that you really do not want to get, but also some, some chemical pollutants like nitrates. Those can cause trouble with breathing, particularly in young children. And, you know, septic leach fields, when they work properly, they do a great job of removing germs and, and a lot of the chemical pollutants as well. Now, you mentioned a number of other pollutants. In your opinion, Karen, which would you say is the greatest threat currently and in the past? And then tell us a little bit about emerging or future threats to our groundwater. Yeah, the, you know, the most common groundwater pollutant in the United States is, is tetrachloroethylene. And that's a, that's a, chlor, it's a chlorinated solvent that was used for dry clean, cleaning and also for cleaning machined metal parts. It's also called PERC or perchloroethylene. You may have heard it called that. And it can cause anything from skin irritation, simple skin irritation, to cancer and even death if there's too many vapors that are inhaled all at once. Is that the PFAs? Uh, no, that would be its PC. PCE. PCE. It's called, yeah. Okay. And so that's the most dangerous, but how uh, apparently a lot of it is getting into our groundwater. How does that occur? Well, it occurs from improper use, improper containment, leaking tanks. Um, and the fact that it's heavier than water means it'll seep down into the groundwater through fractures in rocks and, and pores. So you know, there are more dangerous chemicals that, that are in pollution, but that one is the most widespread. Okay. And, and where does that come from? Is that from industrial plants or cleaning facility, dry cleaning facilities or what? Where is it coming yeah. from that so much of it is getting into our groundwater? Some of it will come from dry cleaning places, but also the, the bulk of it comes from cleaning machine parts because there's, you know, it's a lot of machines that are made in this machine parts that are made in this, this country and they all have to be degreased after they they're machined using oils and then those oils have to be removed before the part can be used. Is that like motor oil or are you talking some about some other types of oils? It depends. The oils that that will be used in machining will really depend on the type of machining and, and you know what type of tooling is used. So that would depend on the weight of the oils. But you know certainly different petroleum products, motor oils, gasoline, diesel fuel, those are all 
pollutants in, in the groundwater as well. But those are, those are lighter than water, so they don't sink down into the, the deep fractures the way that the, um, the perk does. Okay. And I'm presuming since there's so much of these types of chemicals getting into our groundwater that there's no monitoring being done or accountability? Oh, there is. There's oh. plenty. I mean, that's, you know, people are, are, are being forced to clean things up, and a lot of my job is, is designing remedies to, you know, to enhance what Mother Nature can do on her own, except she needs some help because there's so much of it. Okay. Well, thank you for letting us know that. Now, Karen, we see, too, that not all of the pollutants from groundwater that we come in contact with is, is going to be from drinking it. So if we don't ingest contaminated groundwater, in what other ways are we getting impacted by this as it relates to our health? Um, some of it can touching and eating, for example, lead in paint. A lot of the, of the old paints on buildings had lead and they might peel off and come down to the ground. And then if you've got kids playing in the surface soil, they might touch the lead paint, and you know how kids are always putting their hands in their mouths. That's that's how um, children can become you know, very sick and impaired from lead in their bodies. I have to think, too, that as some of that cracking, peeling, chipping paint containing lead falls to the ground, that it does it seep down? Does it have the possibility to seep down into the groundwater? For the most part, it, it'll it'll stay on the surface soils. I mean, a certain amount will, will get into the groundwater, but it's more of a problem for, in terms of the leaded paint. It tends to be more of a problem for contact and then ingestion, you know, if somebody is playing in it. A couple of other issues I wanted to ask you about related to groundwater, and that was aquifer depletion. And then I've heard there can be too much groundwater, which is a weird thing. So can you talk to us about those two issues? Well, what, what, I'll tell you what an aquifer is first, okay. because it's a, you know, it's a term that's used a lot. And the definition is really it's a, it's a water-bearing rock that will transmit water into a well where you can pump it out easily or into a spring. If, you know, if you've ever been hiking in, in the Northeast, sometimes the water is coming right out of the hill. And that tends to be nice, beautiful, fresh groundwater coming out of um, a spring. I wanted to talk about why it's a, an issue of aquifer depletion. And again, as we talk about aquifers, I don't believe that we have a lot of aquifers in North Texas. Are they specific to certain areas? Because I do know in Austin there's a number of aquifers and they're protected and there are big signs up about the Edwards Aquifer or this one or that one or the other. Yeah, there's, those are the really huge ones, huge deep ones. And the, the problem is, is you know, you, you pump the water out of them, but the recharge, of, you know, from, from surface water for the most part is we're, moved, we're pumping it out faster than it's being recharged, and so the water is going away. Um, in terms of too much water, that one I'm not familiar with. Yeah, I'd heard that perhaps too much human activity, such as pumping water from the ground for maybe oil and gas extraction, which we do here in North Texas, called fracking. I've heard that maybe that can cause issues to the aquifer. Yes, the produced water is, um, it's not exactly polluted, but it's not fresh. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of briny. Right, right. So you can't just put it right back in the ground. 
Right. And that's some of the issues we do have in North Texas related to fracking. In fact, I don't know if it's been proven or not, but many say that by them putting that contaminated or certainly unpure water back into the ground, it may be the cause for some recent uptick in our earthquake activity. But it's pumping more water into the ground than is supposed to be there. Yes, that that I have heard of. I mean, you can, you know, and also you're asking, you're asking the aquifer to recover from what is not actually freshwater recharge, and it may or may not be able to. Yeah, I have to think that that's going to to certainly cause some some issues. So environmentally, though, how does groundwater pollution take the greatest toll on our planet, in your opinion, Karen? I think the biggest problem right now is that, you know, according to the World Health Organization, one out of three people in the world, that's a huge number, do not have access to clean, safe drinking water. I mean, that's just amazing. You know, you, you know I, I, we don't even think about it. It's easy for me to get water. I, I drink water from my well. I can buy bottled water. That's not true for a good portion of the people in the world. Yeah, and it's really weird to think of because, again, water, water is everywhere. And as we talked, well over half of our planet, well over half of our planet is made up of water. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in our next segment with our water conservation folks. So let me ask you this, Karen, before we run out of time. A lot of your work focuses on applying biochemical and geochemical processes for active remediation and natural uh, reduction of soil and groundwater contaminants. Talk to us more about what ordinary people in our everyday lives can do to help drive solutions to these contamination issues for our groundwater. So what you can do personally is, is, you know, properly dispose of your household chemicals like paints and cleaning solvents and used motor oil, and be careful when you're using pesticides and fertilizers in your yard, and also have your septic designed by and installed by a licensed professional. You can see, you can go to the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality website or, you know, any other state website and they'll tell you who, who knows how to install those. You can't just, you know, you have to really, they have to be designed properly. I have and to think they have to be licensed as well. Yeah. They do in Texas, I know. Yep. Karen, we really appreciate your help with helping us to understand groundwater, the pollutants, and how this affects our health and what we can do. We will be right back on the other side of our break and talk more about water conservation, which Karen just alluded to is one of the greatest water, groundwater issues in our environment today. We'll be right back. Thank you so much, Karen, for being with us today. We really appreciate your help. And I want to mention, as you had told us, that a couple of weeks ago, we did celebrate or acknowledge National Groundwater Awareness Week, which is very important. And I think you being with us today has highlighted that importance even more. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're now going to start on our second segment, talking about water conservation. There seems to be water, water everywhere. And as we mentioned in our last segment, over 70% of the Earth's surface is covered with water. So how can it be 
that there would never, ever be enough water. Well, here with us in the studio today to help us unpack some of the issues surrounding water conservation and why it's important for a healthy life and a healthy planet are David Cowan and Denise Hickey. David is watershed manager for the North Texas Municipal Water District, and Denise Hickey is the conservation manager there. For more than 60 years, the North Texas Municipal Water District provides vital water, wastewater, and waste management services to more than a million people in North Texas. The 10 original member cities were Farmersville, Forney, Garland, McKinney, Mesquite, Princeton, Plano, Rockwall, and Roy City, and later they were joined by Wiley, Richardson, Allen, and Frisco. And what this really means is that the North Texas Municipal Water Management District is basically the municipal utility for these cities. And we're going to let them tell us a lot more about it. But one thing that I am wondering, as North Texas just grows and grows and grows, how are you all going to expand to, to meet all of that growth need? So welcome, David and Denise, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank Glad you. to be here. Great. Well, let's start off, Denise, for you telling us about how the North Texas Municipal Water District came into being and and why don't all of these member cities we just talked about get their water from the city of Dallas Water Utility? Well, the district was created back um, in the early 50s at the same time that the Corps of Engineers was looking at constructing Lavon Lake for flood control. And fortunately, there were some four-sided um, uh, leaders uh, within those cities that you just mentioned that recognized that the groundwater supplies that they were relying on uh, were, was not going to be able to sustain their growth. So um, these local leaders formed the North Texas Municipal Water District, and we were then allowed a water right from the state of Texas to use water that's stored in Lavon for flood control to treat and then deliver to these communities for potable treated drinking water. Um, so surface water supplies, if you don't know, are owned by the state of Texas. So you have to, in order to use a supply of surface water from any reservoir, obtain a permit um, so that you have rights to that water supply. Is that just a Texas thing or is that everywhere? Well, it differs from state okay. to state, but for Texas, surface water supplies belong to the state. Groundwater or any water supplies underneath the ground belongs to the landowner itself. Okay. And so how were these cities getting water prior to the formation of the district? They were using groundwater or wells. So they were relying on those groundwater supplies, which, of course, are replenished with rainfall as well. Um, but the amount of water in those wells was not going to sustain the growth as you can imagine the cities of Plano and Richardson and some of those communities grew over um, the, the next few years. And what about all this growth we're having to the north, like Prosper and whatever's coming north of that? They are in our service area as well. So we work very closely with our city staff that we serve to ensure that we are on the right track with population demands and water demands so that we can bring additional water supplies online to meet those needs in the future. Okay, and those cities pretty much would need to 
partner with the district to get their utility water needs met unless they decided to, for whatever reason, to build their own? That's correct. Or have wells. Everybody can have wells. That is correct. Um, There are a few communities um, to the north. Um, For example, Anna, who has some groundwater supplies. They're using wells for some of their water supply, and then they obtain water supplies from the district as well. You all do very important work and that we can't exist without. So. That is correct. Water is a very critical resource. It is a finite resource. And so we have to learn to manage it properly and use it wisely and efficiently. Exactly. You know, over the last two episodes of this show, we talked to people about ocean water. We talked to people about um urban watersheds and a number of scientists and researchers and one of the things that just stood out it's a very simple thing but our health our being is connected to water yet we tend to take it for granted that's one of the things we're trying to uncover here yeah i think uh, we're so used to and we're very fortunate to have the technology in place and the resources in place to have a safe quality drinking water provided to all of the cities But we also have to be reminded that each of us as residents and users of the environment, we have an impact on our water supply um, through either littering, um, improper disposal of household um, chemicals such as pesticides or herbicides that we use in our lawns. Um, so we need to, you know, take ownership and realize that our activities can harm um, or really impact our water supplies that we have to treat and deliver to our communities. Exactly. Now, I want to move for a minute, David. I want to start by discussing watersheds. Tell us what is a watershed so that people understand and they understand why it's important to what you do as well as being important to our everyday lives. Yeah, so the concept of watersheds is actually pretty simple. It's it's just an area of land where if water falls, it captures that water. You get rain, precipitation, even snowfall in some areas of the country. If it falls, that water will be captured. If you're flying over a lake, let's say, The lay of the land is not perfectly flat around that lake. You'll see hills, valleys, and peaks. Anything within those peaks is the watershed. So as water drains into those valleys, it goes into our streams, our lakes, down along the Gulf of Mexico, it goes into the bay. And it's important because all of that water that falls in a watershed, as it collects, it's running over the land. And if there are pollutants on the land, it goes into our drinking water supply, our water that we use for recreation, for swimming, for fishing, and of course the critters that live in the water, uh, we want to help protect them too. So basically a watershed is just an area of collection for water within an area. Exactly. It's a conveyance. What is the difference, and I know there's one, between an aquifer and a watershed? Huge difference. (laughs) One's above, one's below. So when you're talking about an aquifer, you're typically talking about groundwater. And if you're talking about an aquifer in some parts of the state, they can be as large as lakes, big open spaces. Like in Austin. That's exactly right. In central Texas, they have these karst regions, and there's a lot of water that uh, is moved very rapidly, almost as much as surface water. Um, If you're talking about a watershed, you're talking about something that's on top of the water. So that's surface waters. Okay. And I know that you all have a have worked very hard to create a watershed protection plan. Talk to us a little bit about that. We have we have we have the Levon 
watershed protection plan. The district got into protecting watersheds about three years ago, and we have developed, we worked a lot with stakeholders in the community, with other agencies, federal and state agencies, to develop this watershed protection plan, which lays out uh, several items that can be done, voluntary uh, programs that can be done to protect water quality. So we work with cities, ranchers, farmers, folks that have a direct impact, stakeholders in that watershed. And so what are examples of some of the things that they do to protect the watershed? So if you're in a city, in a a municipality of a certain size, there are things that you can do to, uh, uh, within your city ordinances, to develop runoff and drainage plans. They might pertain to oils and greases. They might pertain to uh, runoff if you put an impervious cover. Impervious cover is an example of that would be roofs, parking lots, any kind of a development like that. You would need to plan for the runoff that comes off of that so it doesn't go straight into the stream, straight into the waterway. It needs to be stored, treated, and uh, cleaned before it goes into the stream. Speaking of that, what happens to the stuff that goes into the stormwater drains? That's what we're talking about here. So any kind of an impervious cover, if you have over an acre of impervious cover, you really need to slow that water down, stop it from moving so fast, stop some of those pollutants that are in that water, retain that for a while, let it soak in, and then it'll be treated to go on into, in our case, Levon eventually, which is our drinking water supply. I have to think that part of that is education to citizens. Perhaps. And what about when people throw out medicines and things like that into the water? A large part of it is education. We work, and Denise, with her conservation works, closely with citizens. We do outreach. We do uh, programs such as this one where we're trying to show people that their activities – on a daily basis can impact water quality. And their own lives. Thank you so much. We're going to go to break. And when we come back, we want to talk more about treatment and how you get that water to to its best health. Thank you. We want to give a shout out to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, and interactive experiences. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. This year, EarthX 2020, in partnership with the National Geographic Society, will be held virtually April 22nd through 27th to mark the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. This includes their conferences and film festival. And in light of the COVID-19 guidelines, it's Expo physical event at Fair Park has been canceled for the year. So go to earthx.org to register and join in all the many virtual events. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the green and healthy living authority that we need right now. They can be found in all Whole Foods, natural grocers, and central markets, as well as online at nadallas.com. Check them out for healthy immune system tips to help you defend yourself against the coronavirus. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And we're back today with our guest, 
David and Denise from the North Texas Municipal Water District. David is the watershed manager and Denise is the conservation manager. Thank you all again for being with us today. Now, right before the break, we you were explaining to us the things that you all are doing and the things that we need to do in terms of protecting our watershed so we can all have a better water quality. But I want to talk now about water treatment, the things that you all do to make sure that we do have that high quality of water. And also, in our last segment, we were talking with Dr. Karen Kinsella about groundwater. And she mentioned that different localities use different amounts of percent or percentages of groundwater. So how much groundwater does the North Texas Municipal Water District use as opposed to, I guess, reservoir water? All of ours is reservoir water. So no groundwater. And it's primarily from Levon. Levon is the primary reservoir. Is that better or worse or indifferent that it's groundwater or reservoir water? I would say it's indifferent okay. in that um, you'll have different mineral makeup of water. Let's say Levon is going to be different than Lake Texoma in its mineral makeup. Um, just like groundwater is going to have a different makeup. But all in all, for water treatment, um, you will remove any of the waterborne diseases, the bacteria, the viruses, sediment, thing, algae, things like that, mm-hmm. that, of course, none of us would typically want to drink. Um, so regardless if it's groundwater or surface water supply, it meets um, the state drinking water standards that's set by um, the EPA and then through the TCEQ. So and there both are, of them have to be treated, right? Both of them have to be treated to the same quality. Okay. So tell us about that treatment process. How are they treated? Why is it treated? There's several steps in treatment. Denise, you want to? Yeah, a simple way to put it is that um, in if you were to take, you know, the water from Levon, you're going to have particles that are going to be he- heavy enough to settle in the treatment basin on their own. Mm-hmm. And then we will add a chemical to attach to the particles that are floating in the water or suspended to make those heavy enough to fall out of solution. Um, and then we'll use uh, ozone and we'll use chlorine to disinfect the water to kill that bacteria, the viruses, waterborne pathogens that would be in the water supply so that um, it meets those drinking water standards. Okay. So it's coming from the reservoir, and I guess it's flowing through something, and it's being treated with all this these chemicals. It, we and all move these. it through steps. pipes uh-huh, into the water treatment plant. There's several steps, and the ultimate goal is to deliver it at the highest quality to our consumers um, so that it's safe for them to use. That is the priority for not only the district but the cities that we deliver the water to. And I imagine there's several steps or places where it's tested Correct. Along the way. Correct. We have a certified lab. We do over 250,000 water quality tests a year. The cities will take water samples and bring them back in to ensure that the water remains safe for use. So there is those checks along the way um, to ensure our public that it's of the highest quality possible. That we all tend to take for granted. Well, we want it to come out for people can use it um, without any hesitation or any fear. Okay. And I know it's a whole nother story, some of the things that happen, I guess, as it comes through our own pipes and things like that. You know, when you turn on your faucet and you see some brown water and kind of the issues, some of the issues that were happening in Ferguson and things like that. It's like you are bringing it, you're doing a lot of things to make sure that it's pure and safe when it comes from you. But then when it comes from you and maybe attaches to 
how it, our, our house or our pipes can get through. That's a whole other story. Right, but the water quality remains the same. Okay. Uh, there is a chlorine residual that's in the water supply that maintains that disinfection until you actually turn on that tap to get a drink out of the water fountain or to fill a pitcher to make some tea or to cook with or to bathe with. It remains safe for you to use because of the chlorine residual that's required to be in the water supply. Well, thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> you protect us even beyond yourselves. Okay. Now, earlier this month, we had Garrett Boone with the Trinity River Conservancy on, as well as a couple of river keepers, one from New York and one from Maryland. But Garrett was talking to us about the uh, his Trinity River cleanup and protection. And I understand that you all also have an involvement with the Trinity River. So tell us more about how you reuse water that's diverted from the Trinity River and your interaction with the John Bunker Sands Wetland Center. That's right. The, let me, if I can reiterate, the three services that the district provides. We provide water treatment uh, for potable water. Once our citizens have used that water, we provide wastewater treatment. Uh, commonly, people would know it as sewer water or sewer treatment. That water, once it's clean, goes back into the environment to be reused again by either the plants or the wildlife within the watershed, or a water provider can then remove that water from the river, treat it, and use it as a potable water source. So we remove water from the main stem of the Trinity River and the east fork of the Trinity River. We have constructed a man-made wetland, which consists of a variety of different plants that the water will flow through, and those plants actually will clean the water removing the nitrogen, phosphorus, and some of the algae. Once it's finished through the wetlands, then we pump that water back up to Lavon to augment our water supplies. Um, and our wetland is located near the town of Seagaville. And fortunately, we, there is an education center. It's the John Bunker Sands uh, Wetland Center. And it's an education destination for um, high school, middle school, and elementary school kids where they can learn about water source, watershed protection, water quality protection. They can engage in water sample testing. They can talk about the wildlife since all the plants and the water is there. So it's a really great environmental destination for education. So it's really a great package to have part of your water supply where you can go and visit, walk across a boardwalk, and then learn about the environment at the same time. That is so cool. You all have become my new heroes. I've known you for a while, but you are now my new hero. It's so sustainable. It is sustainable, and um, it's a great avenue to help empower people and have them understand their role, not only in the environment, but how water supply is developed, all the different things that go into meeting the needs of our communities. And you've really created this circular yeah, system here. You're, you're, you're taking the water from Levon. You're using it, treating it. We as citizens get it. It comes back as wastewater. You treat it. It goes to the wetlands, filtered, and comes back. We call that the human water cycle. I love it. It's one water. 
it's just used over and over again. And that's a key point is that while we have this population growth in our area, our communities are going to have to learn to change our behaviors, value that water, use it more efficiently, um, because we can then um, delay some of the other water supplies that we have to come online to meet those demands. A quarter of our future supplies are going to come from how we efficiently use our water today. Yeah, and that's what I want to key in on now, and that is conservation, because it's it's just growing and growing here. And, and so water conservation, and even the last guest on groundwater mentioned it, that that is the environmental problem of the future. So what are you guys doing in that respect? Well, we have a lot of education programs. We help our cities um, sponsor uh, we have a partnership with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service, and they put on proven techniques and technology to help the homeowner, uh, the common person, learn how to uh, properly take care of their lawn, how to not overwater their landscape, because our landscape irrigation, the amount of water we use to water our lawns is really puts that peak demand in our summer months. And that's what we have to plan for in the future are those peak demands. And if we can shave off that peak by doing a better job, uh, not overwatering our lawns, then we can even extend our water supply further. So we serve about 1.8 million folks in the North Texas area. And if the projections keep going as as we're seeing that they will, it's going to be double that by 2050. So conservation has got to play a key part in that. There's just not enough water in Texas to supply all the people that are moving here. And so, yeah, once again, conservation is just key. And how do our droughts impact that? Make it worse? Well, without rainfall, you don't have water flowing in the watershed to then flow into our reservoir. And so then you have to look at those uh, discretional measures of how we use water. Um, the non-discretional measures for health and public safety and firefighting, you have to have a water supply for. So the first things that get restricted are those things that we choose to use water on where we don't have to. Overwatering our lawns, um, you know, making sure our swimming pools don't have leaks or, you know, making sure everything is working properly that uses water. So those are the areas that you will see get, um, you know, restricted a little bit further. Okay. One last question. Well, two last questions. (laughs) Would we see ourselves or would there be the necessity to maybe then go to for groundwater at some point? Remember that groundwater is what got us in the fix in the first place. In the 50s, we were in the drought of record, and most of the cities that obviously had much, much less population were on groundwater at the time. So I would say groundwater supplies are not nearly as reliable as our surface water supplies are now. Okay. Last thing, quickly. Last word from both of you all in terms of what can ordinary citizens do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions for water conservation. From a watershed standpoint, I would say... Be mindful of how much fertilizer you're using, how many chemicals you're using on your yard. Don't do that. Don't apply them right before rain because they end up in the waterway. Take care of the area around you and be mindful of stormwater runoff because you know where it's going to end up in your water supply. And I think that if you just start a conversation about water, uh, start talking about water you know, recognizing how you use water, how your water is used in your community. Have a talk with your children. Start with how the animals use the water, the same water that we use, and then you'll understand and you'll have a, a, an ownership of the water supply that we use every day. Thank you so much, Denise and David, for being with us. You've really enlightened us, and we look forward 
for the next time you come back. And we know that that's going to happen. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, in your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for more information on healthy living and healthy planet. Thank you.